You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. Our guest today is Duff McDuffie. Duff is a certified professional hypnotist and hypnotic coach, and he's here to talk with us about creative strategies for neurodivergent types and various other things. There's a lot of humor and warmth in this conversation, and it's really fabulous. You can find Duff's website at boulderhypnosisworks.com. That's boulderhypnosisworks.com. So let's dive in with Duff McDuffie. Mm. All right. Mr. Carlos Casados, how you doing, sir? Mr. Satch Purcell, I'm doing well. Look, look which shirt I'm wearing today. I just have to say. Oh, the authenticity shirt. Oh, wow, look at that. Beautiful. I've got I to gotta show off the, the merch. Oh, man, I should have worn mine. Oh, gosh. Start yeah. over. All right, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, here we are in a, a virtual world again because our guest is is uh, not close by and can't come over and 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 um, and hang with us for that. Sadly. Sadly, yes. Yeah. We have a wonderful... Uh, Andrew Duff McDuffie, a.k.a. Duff, um, friend of mine and new friend to Satch. Um, really, really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah it's going to be great. Yeah. Hey, you know, I was you're, you're, you're in Denver, right? Is that, is that... Uh, Boulder, Colorado? Boulder, yeah. you're in Boulder. Boulder. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking your background was giving it away. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm not actually by the lake, but it is uh, is a nice yeah. background. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I could go there very quickly to one of many lakes in the mountains. Yeah, nice. That's okay. so cool. Well, I'm glad we're finally having this conversation because Duff, I I met you virtually um, before the Hypnothoughts conference. I met you through right. interactions on Hypnothoughts.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, back we, in the day. Back in the day, yeah. So I think we had just a couple of exchanges or whatever. And then when I rejoined Facebook after having a hiatus, um, you know, you were on there and and, and we connected there. And then I was very uh, pleased when we met how uh, warm you were. Uh, when we, we had a great conversation, great hug. Uh, I think we had lunch there at the uh, the conference. and The Orleans, and yes. Orleans, yeah, the, the former home of hypnothoughts um right. and then we ended up in a couple of classes together uh doing some hypnotic exercises and stuff like that um so mm-hmm. through that time i've had fun uh, being on your page and watching your really laser precision mm-hmm. philosophical conversations with your buddies and stuff that's always <laughs> a lot of fun yeah, I, I, I do have a i do have a background in philosophy as an undergrad so that had informs a lot of what i do but yeah it shows uh, it shows <laughs> so, yeah 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 but Thanks, no yeah. i mean you're a deep thinker and I like that. And I respect that about you. And I love um, that you're also a really kind person too. So that combination is. Well, thank you. Special. I appreciate that. Carlos takes yeah. one to know one. Thank yeah. you. And, and you know, you know, Duff, I, I got to say, um, you know, they, they say that the first few seconds you meet somebody, you, you get a pretty good impression, you know, of, of mm. who the person is. And I immediately feel 
uh, comfortable with you and at ease with you. I, I, I sense that mm. that kindness, and uh, uh, I like it. You know, so this is going to be it's going to be a lot of fun to to. Uh, I will, your well, you'll be very surprised when I'm actually very mean throughout the whole rest of the conversation. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, no, it's the eyebrows, kidding. right? Just, you know, <laughs> furrow, furrow. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, where do we want to kick it off? Do we want to well, just uh, dive right in? I would love to ask you first, uh, just because because I know you, Satch is getting to know you, but um, maybe let's talk a little bit about your background. Like, first of all, I, I know that you do yeah. hypnosis and NLP, but what brought mm-hmm. you into that and where did you train to do that and t- sure. get started on that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, like I mentioned a moment before, I uh, did philosophy in college, actually studied mostly uh, uh, philosophy of mind, philosophy of language. Uh, and in fact, the, all these sorts of things sort of orient around something called cognitive science, which was emerging when I was in college. We didn't have a cognitive science department at my school, but really studying the mind, studying how we have experiences in the first place. How do we even have cognition? <clears throat> um, and I was very fascinated about that. But the problem with uh, studying it from cognitive science perspective is all from sort of the outside looking in. Mm. It's like asking people about their experience or measuring their brain waves and so on which is interesting to me, but I wanted to know more about the experience of it. Uh, and that wasn't really done within cognitive science, at least at the time. I don't know if it's changed. but uh, And so after uh, graduating college, I discovered this NLP stuff. And I was like, this, this sounds to me like applied cognitive science. This is like uh, what cognitive science is doing, but from the inside and to use it for some purpose for ourselves or for you know helping others or communicating better and so on. And I'm like, now that that's something I can use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my philosophy of language class, philosophy of mind, I can't really apply that directly into my daily life. But NLP, I can use that. How yeah. did you discover it? Was it so did someone give you a book or did you see something? Uh yeah. So my initial introduction to NLP was through Tony Robbins. Okay. Yeah. Uh, someone lent me his personal power to tapes. Like when I was really depressed and I like many, yeah. And I listened to all of his tapes. I had to get them back to my friend. Uh, you know, so I had listened to him in a hurry and kind of got through them. And uh, and that was my introduction. Now, now Tony Robbins has some things left to be desired in the end. Uh, in fact, I went I went uh, to one of his live trainings and and saw his sales pitch. And let's just say, don't do what Tony Robbins does for his sales pitch, please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was the most aggressive sales pitch I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, for hours, uh, just firing off all these anchors and and just so. So, uh, you know, pushy to to say the least. So, um, and he was doing a lot of good stuff and I'm like, like, this is really incongruent. I don't know what's happening, but, um, but I was getting a lot of value from what he was doing and it was like really aggressive. So, um, ultimately I found an alternative in the work of Steve and Connie Ray Andreas, uh, cause they had the precision of NLP, but they also had a different set of values that was very much not pushy. Yeah. Uh, and focused on what we call ecology in NLP, which is like, if you do something, is it going to cause negative side effects? Uh, you know, and let's let's prepare for that in advance so we don't do that. Um, and they're just wonderful human beings, and I I learned a lot from from uh, joining up with their organization. Started working with them maybe 13, 14 years ago now, uh, and now I basically run their marketing. Um, and so you know, that has been a journey in itself, like learning how do you do marketing for something that's so consensual and so non-pushy you know mm-hmm. when most marketing is like buy our shit you need it or you're not good enough you know yeah uh, <laughs> uh so it's been a journey learning how to do that too 
Um, and I can't say we're like the most successful of anybody, but we're doing a lot better. We're doing pretty good. Um, and you know, trying to figure out how to, how to sell people on wholeness and sell people on, on, you know, communicating in a win-win kind of way. Um, it's been an interesting journey itself. It sounds like it. I was actually thinking about how the world, um, you know, the public world online views NLP and there's a, there's a huge disparity between opinions about NLP and um, it's all over the map. Um, Not either don't know about it or they associate it with uh, pickup artists or they associate it with, uh, you know, really heavy salesy kind of persuasion and manipulation. Sure. And then some people look at it more as a change work, just a pure experience, but like I would say it's such a huge mm-hmm. mix and for good reason there there are practitioners and teachers um with all different kinds of morals and different ethical um standards yeah. so when it comes to totally. you know the andreas folks i always point to that as an example of where where it was done right like where it was done in a way with mm-hmm. uh, deep consideration for the person rather than for the dollar um right. and it's Definitely. it's good they're not the only ones doing it thank god but they're one of the main yeah. ones that I always point to because consistently mm-hmm. they have represented that. Even the the continued development of stuff that they do, it's all centered around, um, in a sense, uh, finding yourself and being uh, a better human being. You know, by looking at and yeah. seeing who you are um, without right. sitting yourself. You know, I love yeah. that. And and also there's the there's the additional element there where you know Stephen Connie Ray being um, you know, in the academic world, still respected. So it's not mm-hmm. like you know, they've got this fake doctorate degree or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Connie Ray has a real, real PhD. In a real PhD. And, yep. and uh, yeah, Steve had a had a master's in chemistry on you know, hard science. So yeah, that really comes through in their work. It does. And and so in the world where uh, many psychologists who have just a brief kind of skimming of what NLP is, a brief brief touch of it. They tend to think of it as like a pseudoscience or some kind of uh, BS um, snake oil kind of thing. And there are a lot of people mm-hmm. out there promoting that idea because they ignore people like the Andreases. They don't yeah, look at that. Exactly right. So yeah. I was I was gonna just jump in and say, like, like you guys are both NLP practitioners and you know, like do coaching and things like that. I'm familiar with it just by being next to people like you a lot. Um, but maybe if we're getting any listeners that are tuning in and they're they're seeing our show for the first time or something, maybe just in a sentence or two, just kind of describe just tell everybody what is NLP and then we can kind of take it from there. <clears throat> uh sure. Yeah, I'll chime in on that. So there's lots of different definitions of NLP, but the one that I like the most is uh neuro-linguistic programming. So programming, our brains are kind of like a computer. They're not a computer, but as a metaphor. We've all heard your brain is like a computer. Uh, so neuro-linguistic programming is, if you think of your brain as like a computer, how can we reprogram it for the way that we want? Uh, you know, So to program our automatic thoughts, feelings, and behaviors so that they are more useful to us and more beneficial. Uh, so that's how I tend to think of it. Um, but interestingly, some people think of NLP as programming other people's brains so they can get what they want. And that's where we get the dichotomy, I think, in NLP between people who are like, no, this is a useful method for helping myself change and helping other people to change themselves in the way that they want, coaching, you know, and that's the way I work. 
And then there's people who are like, no, you can use these same tools to manipulate people to get what you want. And mm-hmm. I think that's true of any psychological tool, not just NLP. True. So yeah, yeah. Psych 101 class and do that to somebody. Uh, right. So it's really, you know, but the same thing's true of any science. Uh, this is where I always return to chemistry. Like I really liked chemistry in high school and they teach, they teach chemistry to high schoolers. How could they? You can make a pipe bomb with chemistry. You can yeah. cook meth with chemistry. Right? Yeah. Uh, but most people don't cook meth or make pipe bombs, thank God, with their high school chemistry knowledge. Uh, and most people who learn NLP actually are not manipulative because most humans are not manipulative. Yeah. But there's a small percentage of people who are who are highly manipulative humans and uh, and they seek out yeah. psychological information so they can manipulate people better. So it's yeah. good to know that people like that exist so that we can be aware of that. Uh, but at the same time, we can mostly trust most human beings, I think. Uh, and we don't need to develop any sort of paranoia around every human being on the planet. We can just have our spidey senses and trust them when we feel like mm, this person's a little. Not so yeah, great. that's that, that's perfect. You know, I was going to say that, um, you know, just just like in general, the the field of psychology could be used to help people who are having difficulties in their lives. But then we also know that it's pretty much uh, harnessed for the power of marketing and advertising exactly, right? you know what i mean so it's the same thing and you know, i do marketing for a totally different <laughs> paradigm of, of right. stuff here right. Right. That's interesting. yeah so you, like you i look at all the marketing right. advice and i'm like i can't do this i can't do this this is <laughs> this is incongruent with everything else we do so i have to learn to modify it you know yeah, yeah. like fear-based scarcity marketing it's like that's not great yeah, yeah. You're, you're reminding me uh, years ago i read a um um I guess you could call it a hack piece or something, but it was a anti NLP article, and it was um, mm-hmm. it was being sent out to, um, ironically, uh, people who were interested in the occult, um, and mm. and it was right. talking about NLP as uh, you know not only a massive crock of shit um, and it doesn't work <laughs> and it's ridiculous, but here's how to protect yourself from that thing that doesn't work. Um, yes. So it's yeah. like it was very funny. It doesn't work, and it's dangerous. Yeah, very much. That's so. funny. You know, Carlos, that 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 reminds me of the time I, I might have told you about this. I, I I had a I I didn't mean I didn't mean to get into a debate with him, but I accidentally got into a debate with a pharmaceutical chemist uh-huh. about about traditional Chinese herbs, and mm. he was by the end of the argument, he was basically telling me that, but there isn't any research to even show that the human gut will absorb the ginsenocides. Mm. I'm like, what? <laughs> I said, okay, well then why do they also always uh, warn everybody about the potential side effects like high blood pressure and heart palpitations and all that? But so you're yeah. telling me that there's no science yeah. to show that it gets absorbed, but there's all this science that says that there are these potential problems that could happen. So be careful. It's a cherry pick. Yeah. Uh, you know, come on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Right to me, it's if you have anything that that's powerful—a medicine or a psychological method—it could be powerfully good or powerfully harmful, depending on how it's used. So yeah. it is important, how you know, when you're learning chemistry, to to be careful and to not get you know acid in your eyes. And it's also important that when you're learning powerful <laughs> psychological techniques that you have a framework of like wanting to help. And want, you know, wanting to be yeah. helpful to yourself or to others. And we can cultivate that in various ways, you know, whether like, that's very directly through something like loving kindness meditation yeah, or, you know, yeah. something like core transformation, which is the NLP technique that's welcoming all parts of you and looking for the positive intention and so on. You know, there's lots of different 
ways to cultivate good intentions if uh if you know we need a little improvement which we could all probably benefit from not me i'm perfect i have nothing else to change in my life i've, I've reached the pinnacle i've got it all <laughs> except yeah. for carlos everyone else can can use some but, you know some feel free to contact me for advice if you want <laughs> oh. So, um, right. I, I see such a difference between um potentially dangerous versus dangerous you know um when you have right knowledge that we have um the older and and more deeply we study things of course we see the um the way things when you when you when you understand how things are constructed as you get to know mm -hmm. how things are constructed you know how to deconstruct them and therefore uh both creation and destruction becomes possible so potentially dangerous is totally different than actually dangerous you know dangerous right to me means uh it's either volatile or there's some negative intent there or uh it's not trustable because it's random or you know there's something that makes it inherently yeah dangerous. right but yeah right right yeah yeah i think i could count the number of people who've like done some harm with nlp on one yeah. hand probably that i know um you know so it's actually extremely safe stuff especially if you learn it with the sense of ecology or care or trying to not have negative side effects which if anything doesn't seem to exist in other psychological techniques yeah. it's like it's like a yeah. great improvement um and then the other the other wonderful thing about nlp the reason why i think nlp actually is more effective than many other ways of doing things is because we test things all the time. Mm -hmm. We have this test, operate, test, exit, loop, tote, which means you see how the person is responding right now. So maybe like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not confident speaking in front of groups. Okay. Imagine speaking in front of a group, stand, step into the situation. How does that feel in your body? Ah, I feel nervous. Okay. Now let's do something else. We'll do some technique to try to change that. We'll come back. Now imagine again, standing in front of a group about to present. How does it feel now? Oh, it feels fine. And I'm a little excited. You know, that's the ideal. But maybe you have to go through that and try multiple things, 10, 20 things, even before you get that final result where it seems like, okay, this is what I want. Uh, so we're actually testing things in imagination over and over again within a coaching session or if we're working on ourselves or if we're communicating with another person, we're trying to communicate something and they're clearly not getting it in the way that we want. Uh, whereas so many other things, coaching methodologies, therapy techniques, and so on, don't seem to have a test built in. Yeah. Uh, even something like supplements. Like I think about this a lot. Like if you take a supplement to get a result, how do you know if the supplement has worked? Like a lot of times you don't, right? You're just like, I hope this improves my health somehow. And you don't like really test, right? And there's no test to figure it out. So you don't know when you can stop taking the supplement or if you should take more or you should take less or if it's the right one or the wrong one. Um, and so many things in life are like that where we're we're doing something to improve ourselves, but we don't know if we're getting results or not in the direction we want to go. Um, and so that's that doesn't set up a, a learning loop or a feedback loop where we can really improve. Uh, and so to me, the one of the geniuses of NLP is that it was built in from the beginning to, to do sort of rapid iteration cycles and get feedback and learn really quickly um, by just trying things using imagination because we can pretend like we're in a real context. Um, so whereas like Pavlov and his dogs, he was training dogs to drool on command, uh, but just did it in real time, right? Like, so he'd feed the dogs uh, or he'd ring a bell and then feed the dogs and ring the bell and feed the dogs and ring the bell and feed the dogs. Um, and that would eventually associate the bell with dinner time, right? And so then they drool. Uh, but we don't have to wait. So like if you're wanting to build a habit once a day, 
like first thing in the morning, I get up and I meditate for 10 minutes, right? I was like, okay, well, it's going to take at least 21 days. Well, that's a random number that happens to sound nice or 30 days. That's about this length of a month. Maybe it takes you 500 days. Who knows how many days it takes, but you doesn't actually have to take any days because you can imagine all the days in your, in your head right now. And so you can practice in your imagination uh, and you can test to see, does it feel automatic when I think about it? And then you can get up the next morning and see if it's actually automatic. So you can do another test. Um, but that's, that's to me that the key to NLP's sort of rapid change is we're doing rapid iteration. We're actually like trying things quickly and testing them out. And your, your unconscious is capable of, you know, infinite rehearsal. So in your exactly. meditation, if you're, if you get good at that, that means that you can also suggest the idea that you can um, do it more than you can consciously track. And that's an interesting, yeah. you know, mm thing that can be in there. And, and then, you know, there's something, you know, you've mentioned many times um, and it's so important is checking back with the person and making sure that what you did in previous weeks is working out the way it seemed it was working out in the office. And then if yep. not, then coming back and making adjustments to make sure that you actually achieve the result rather than the valid claims or valid um, uh, criticisms that are leveled against some practitioners where they don't check on that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's scary to check your work. You don't know if it actually worked or not. But that's, yeah. you know, this is the reality based approach to change, right? We're, we're testing it and seeing if it works. Um, and there's nothing like seeing the results for yourself and being like, wow, okay, that really worked. Uh, but that's not NLP works or NLP doesn't work. It's whether you're actually being creative enough and learning from what you try works like that. That That is what works in life, right? Like trying things and learning from what we do and seeing if it works or not. Um, so to me, that's the heart of NLP and that's the heart of change work. Um, I remember the first time I did this, I was actually listening to some Tony Robbins or something. Um, and this was back in my twenties. And I had this thing where I loved going out dancing, uh, but Half the time when I went out dancing to a club, uh, you know, and there's music playing, there are people around, I couldn't get myself to do it. It just froze up, right? And the other half of the time, I'd finally break through and I'd be like, woo, I'm having a great time, right? Uh, and I was like, I don't like this. I want to I wanna be able to dance every time I go out. How do I get myself to do this? And I, and I, used, I used some mental rehearsal. I used some neuro-linguistic programming. Uh, what I did is I imagined walking through the door of this particular club I'd go to all the time and immediately starting to dance and just feeling great uh, and being in the zone. And I played that out in my mind 10, 15, 20 times. That's all it took. Next time I went out, it was it was on from there on. Uh, I was just able to get right into there and get over my shyness and get over the frozen state and just do it. That's so great. That's nice, you, yeah. Curiosity is so connected to to confidence, and in, in my experience, at least, um, yeah, you're if you're comfortable being curious, it means there's got to be some confidence in there. I think you know you have to be relaxed mm. enough, or at least free of of any significant tension enough to be able to explore where your mind wants to take you, and that that's a form of confidence. It's mm. what every baby, every toddler has automatically in copious amounts, and it gets drilled mm -hmm. out of them. Spanked out of them or whatever. Um, totally, so confidence is our birthright. We have a, you know, we're kind of using NLP and these methods to to kind of remind us that we are capable of just. I mean, imagine if you if you if you shifted 
if everyone knew that they could shift uh, their anxiety for um, curiosity and that kind of thing, what how would that change their experience? Oh man, totally. Yeah, this this is. I'm glad you brought up the uh, the baby example. Um, yeah, because when we are young, we're just natural learners, right? We just we're just soaking up stuff, uh, and somehow along the way, we stop doing that. Like, why is that? Um, and to me, I, I've been reflecting on this as an example of fear of failure. Like we fear of failure is a learned response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially from being punished when we fail for being negative, getting negative feedback, whether that's being yelled at or, you know, and then we internalize that as negative internal dialogue or, you know, actually getting negative consequences, bad grades, you know, whatever it is, physical punishment. Um, so that's trained out of us because when, when babies start to walk, their failure rate is 100% at first. They suck at walking. Uh, but we don't go, boo, you suck. You're never going to walk. <laughs> Spake the baby. <laughs> How dare you just try to stand up and uh, you don't know what you're doing. Right? But we do that to ourselves as adults all the time. And after a while, we get this sort of like encrusted bubble or of like, this is what is safe and comfortable for me because I'm good at it. And beyond that, eh, I just don't go over there. Mm. This uh, is this is reminding me, uh, Duff, of um, you know something that Carlos and I have spoken about on on, on a few occasions. Is that um, competence does not necessarily equal confidence, but most people make the mistake right. of thinking that that's true. Right? That in order to be confident, yes. you have to already know what you're doing. Yes, totally right. Right. As opposed to like, okay, so let's say you want to do something totally new. Like, how do you get yourself to even do it? And what I've started to notice, especially in my clients, is that that's that's the limiting thing for people in their in their growth as human beings. Like, most people have some goal where they want to do something totally new. The reason they're not doing it is because the failure rate's basically a hundred percent when they first start, uh, and maybe it can get down to like ninety or eighty percent in a few weeks. But that is just so painful still to fail eighty percent of the time. But the only reason it's painful is because of what we're doing to ourselves our internal dialogue, our own, we're punishing ourselves when we fail rather than, okay, I tried something. All right. That didn't get me what I wanted yet. Okay. That's cool. I'm, you know, Carlos, like the curiosity, like, huh, I wonder, wonder what can I learn from that? Uh, so I've actually created a explicit process for how to, how to get there because most people aren't there yet. Um, Sounds good. And uh, yeah. it's an acronym. You got to have a good acronym for any process, right? Afli, A-F-L-I. So start with acknowledging the truth. So you tried something, it didn't work. What happened? What's just the truth? It's not judging, not shame or blame, just what happened. Uh, and then forgive, F. Can you forgive yourself for for failing, for being a human being? You know, Have self-compassion. Uh, I tried something new. It's okay. Uh, and then L, learn. What did I learn from this? What can I take away? Now, I used to try to go right for learning. I'd be like, what did I learn from this? Mm -hmm. Kind of force Mm -hmm. it. But I wasn't ready emotionally. I hadn't gone to the forgive or self-compassion step. So uh, I found that was really important to add in there, actually. Mm. Um, And then after learning, I stands for iterate. So what can I try next time? What can I try next time? Or especially like right away, like right now or tomorrow or, you know, soon. It might not work either. The thing I try, that might not also work, but that's okay because then I can just acknowledge the truth, forgive myself, learn, iterate, acknowledge the truth, forgive myself, learn, iterate over and over. 
Uh, and eventually, if I do that, I'll learn enough that I know what I'm kind of doing, or at least what doesn't work, and you know, be able to go in a useful direction. Uh, so I do this myself pretty much every day. I, I, I'm a failure, guys. I fail every day uh, <laughs> at something, uh, which is good because that means I'm learning and growing. When I'm not failing at anything, that's actually where it's a problem. Stagnation. Uh, but I try to set, yeah, I try to set some like slightly ambitious goals for my day. Uh, you know, stretching me a little bit. Um, and then I don't always live up to them. And so I do this process and I learn iterate and forgive myself for being human once again. It's okay. Uh, and then uh, try something new the next day. And I do this with my clients. I do this. Uh, my wife and I started doing this together when we, you know, we try something. It doesn't work. Oh, no, no. We're upset with each other. Uh, let's go through the effort. What do we do? All right. Well, we tried this. Didn't get the result we wanted. Can we forgive each other? Yes. All right. Learn from that. And uh, what can we try next time? Beautiful little thing. The funny thing about this acronym, AFLI, A-F-L-I, is I didn't realize, I was doing it for like three or four months before I realized it's an anagram for the word fail. Huh. It is. (laughs) Interesting. So So we're recycling failure, turning it into something new. Like park benches made of recycled plastic bottles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, that is so cool! Wow, my kitty cat yeah. wanted to hear hear about the acronym, so she she popped into the, into the scene here. This is Misa, yes. everybody. Misa. This is Misa. Misa. Yeah, there she is. She's frisky right now. She's running all over the place, and she was biting my hand earlier and everything. So, and she's, she's yelling at me. She's yelling at me. Hey, don't don't attack me on camera. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. Wow, Affley. It's almost like you thought that out ahead of time, but you didn't. <laughs> that it was, uh, you know, for the, the word <laughs> no, fail. I thought for you know? sure. I was like, because yeah. I was thinking, and I was talking to my wife, we need a better acronym. Affley is a stupid acronym. Like, come on, we got to come up with a better one. And then I realized, oh, wow, it's an acronym for fail. It's the perfect acronym. It's turning failure into feedback, right? Like, that's, mm-hmm. we have this expression in NLP. There's no such thing as failure, only feedback. Now, I learned that expression over 20 years ago. Uh, and I'm just now really like leading to new new levels of understanding what that means uh, mm-hmm. because I have a practice now to put that principle into action mm-hmm. with Affley. Uh, well, so yeah, I found after about three or four months of doing this, I, I started to really feel differently about trying new things. And, and then also others, when they made mistakes, I started to have like instant compassion. Um, you know, like if I buy something from Amazon, it's kind of a piece of shit and it doesn't work before I get really upset and I try to send it back and I'll be really mad. And now I'm like, look, they're just doing their best too. They made a prototype. It wasn't perfect. It's okay. That's great. Yeah, that is great. Um, I was, I was, oh, sorry. I I was going to say that, um, uh, this discussion, um, I, I think one of the themes that I'm seeing right now is, um, uh, it's important to have a, a, a workable strategy or a model uh, to put into real life practice things that would otherwise be um, very, you know, more like intellectual research based, you know, uh, like, like that. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, Duff, we're, we're just getting to know each other. I'm an occupational therapist. And, um, mm. and this is one of the ways that I know that NLP is a profession right is because of like what you were saying um uh the tote model you know like like assess as you go 
right? Um, yeah. All professions assess and then feed that information back into the system mm. and then make modifications and adaptations and continue. And so all, all professions do that. And that's one of the things that that lets me know that NLP is, is definitely a profession. Um, uh, what, what I was going to say um, is that I was recently teaching a class to, to some, some students at this, at the university that I'm at. And um, we were talking about frames of reference. And um, so, so, so in, in the occupational therapy world, for example, we would say, um, how do you take all this research? It might be research in healthcare, maybe psychology, sociology, anthropology, you know, all, all these, you know, behavioral sciences, all these different things. They're, they're, it's, it's like this big glob of theory. Mm-hmm. And the, the word for something that puts theory into practice is a frame of reference, a frame mm-hmm. of reference, right? So, um, for example, the world of psychology is just a bunch of interesting tests and experiments and gives you data, right? But you yep. can't practice that unless you have a frame of reference that harnesses that knowledge and puts it into actual practice. So, for example, um, cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy would be a frame of reference yep. that that is able to utilize certain aspects of research and and actually apply it in practice, right? And I would say that um, to me, I'm, that's what I'm seeing is that NLP is a, a very broad um, frame of reference mm-hmm. that allows people to actually put into practice these otherwise theoretical concepts. So it's just, it's just a frame of reference. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. you could switch to another frame of reference, you know, as needed. Totally. An eclectic approach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what I'd say, yeah, within within NLP, NLP itself is a sort of a, a frame of reference containing multiple frame of references. Mm-hmm. In it. Mm-hmm. it is itself an eclectic approach. Um, mm-hmm. And there's constant discussion as to, well, you know, maybe this old frame is outdated and we should replace it with something new. And and some people will splinter off and do that and other people won't. And, and so there's not necessarily even one unified NLP. There's just a bunch of people cobbling together things that have been useful to them. Um, and I don't even use all of the things within NLP. I think there's so many things within NLP yeah. that it's hard to use them all in a given yeah, like, year, like let no, alone in a lifetime. Just yeah. like no no psychologist could ever use everything that's available in psychology. You know, no, no, that's even <laughs> like, that's even crazier. Yeah, a doctor right. can't use everything available in medicine. You know, it's just no, too much. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're I, in the information age. There's just a proliferation of information and techniques. There is, and 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 that was one of the things that was important to me or significant for me is realizing how big the topic of NLP really is. Having come from uh, initially doing fast track courses and things where you get a distilled, right. you get a distilled version that is somebody's version, usually Tad James' version of um, of how <laughs> it should be presented, and then you you know that's what you, what you get, and and there isn't a lot of emphasis on here's where this comes from, and here's where you could research more, here's mm-hmm. here are other variations, here's other applications for that very thing. It's not black and white. This is not dogma. This is just you know things that we've discovered so far that works consistently, but you know there are other ways. Right. Now they don't teach you to experiment in those fast track courses. Um, so yeah. a while, but I, but when I realized, um, that there were those other avenues of in-depth discovery and I, and I met teachers that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, particularly my main mentor, um, who really demonstrated the, the depth of how deeply it could go. It, it was kind of like this, not just an aha, but a, an at last feeling in my heart, because I love mm-hmm. deep topics, uh, Taoism or martial arts and anything that, that, that 
you could dive into in a really deep way. So that was in sharp contrast to what people were claiming about NLP, which was that it was just pseudoscience. It's a silly little thing. And, you know, and right. it's not actually the case. If you dive into what it really is, it's super deep and you could probably go all your life and not know everything there is to know about NLP, as you said earlier. Um, right. Yeah. People end up, end up specializing, but yeah, I think to me, yeah, the difference between say a fast track, you know, superficial overview of NLP and the deeper dive is in these sort of, in these frame of references, um, like tote, like test, operate, test, exit. If you're actually testing things regularly, you're going to learn as a practitioner too. And you're going to be like, oh, you know, I learned this method and as I use it, it's for whatever reason, it's not working for me or my clients. Like this is a, a very common thing. It's like this method is supposed to be the ultimate method. I'm using it and I'm, and if I'm actually paying attention to reality, I'm like, I'm not getting the results for some reason. Uh, maybe I need more training or maybe this method isn't appropriate for m this client. I'm not sure. Uh, so, but if we have this attitude of like, let's find out what's real here. Let's find out like how we get a, a real change with this person rather than I'm just applying the thing and now I'll never talk to you again. And yay, it looked good to me. Good. Uh, then, then we're engaging with reality in a way where we're learning and growing too. Uh, as a practitioner, as a coach, as a as a therapist, whatever the role is. Um, so uh, as I've been doing this, and I, I'm sure you have Carlos and other people in NLP as well, we tend to go in certain directions that are unique to our own personality and, um, you know, what's interesting to us and so on. Uh, and lately, like, uh, I've been going in some, some different directions in my own coaching and in my own understanding of NLP, uh, partly inspired by Jess Marion, who I know you uh, were closely with as well, and Sean Carson and Sarah Carson, the HNLP kind of school. Uh, and then, um, but also just one thing I've realized after working with clients for a long time. So there's an approach where, where the client comes in with a problem and you take these tools and you're like, I'll use my tools to solve your problem. Um, and that's not bad. Uh, but what I noticed in that is there's an element of like, well, this client would already solve their problem if they had some of the frame of reference that I do. Like they wouldn't even be here and they would be able to solve lots of other problems in their life that they don't even know are a problem yet or they're not able to address yet and so on. Um, so part of what I've been transitioning to is trying to teach people how to think differently and experience life differently so that they can actually effectively troubleshoot all of their problems, mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, so like, like in NLP, we talk about like noticing difference versus noticing sameness as a meta program. That's a technical term. You don't need to know what it means, but uh, it's just a filter, a filter. So some people are filtering for what's different here, and some people are filtering for what's the same here. Uh, now, when you're going to change something, if you're filtering for what's the same, you won't notice the tiny little incremental difference that has already taken place. Uh, you know, like if you're trying to go from, uh, I don't know, bench pressing 45 pounds, just the bar to bench pressing 225 pounds, you're not going to get there in one week or two weeks or even six months, probably. It's going to be a long, slow journey. Uh, so noticing when you go up by five pounds or one rep is very important. Uh, if you discount that, it's like, no, I only went up one rep. This isn't working. NLP doesn't work. Bench press doesn't work. Carlos, I've been bench pressing for three weeks and I've only gone up one rep. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Duff. I went to the gym once. I one time I went to the gym. It totally didn't work. Yeah. Didn't work. I am <laughs> not fit. 
right? Didn't work. Uh, You know, you have to go for a long time. It's a slow thing. Uh, and, and in order to be motivated, you have to be excited about making an additional rep from last week or last month. Right. Uh, so trying to teach my own clients to notice tiny changes, did things improve even 1% since last week? Uh, you know, or another thing like a, a large percentage of clients. So the first session you do something, right? Do some NLP change work. It looks good. Next session. How does every client want to start the second session? Oh, it didn't work. Nothing has changed. So they're not noticing difference, number one. Let me tell you about all the other bad things that are happening in my life and get into a really unresourceful state. Then we'll try to troubleshoot from that really unresourceful state. Yeah. Uh, so I found that doesn't. that's probably not the best state to come up with creative solutions outside of the box to solve your life's biggest issues. Uh, so I've created a format where in subsequent sessions, we start with, What's all the things that went well since the last time we talked? All the things that went well. Let's make a huge list and just feel really good about all the good things in your life. Don't worry. We'll get to the problems in a moment. Get to the room for improvement. But first, what are all the things that went well? Uh, This works on multiple levels. Trying to reverse the negativity bias. So many people have such a, uh, you know, we're evolved in some ways to just notice all the negative things so that we survive. But now there's an infinite number of those and it just gets overwhelming and we get unresourceful quickly. So having more of a positivity bias that we can get ourselves into feeling good. Uh, and then that's also a better place to brainstorm solutions to problems. And there's always going to be room for improvement. No matter how, you know, how many NLP courses we've done or how long we've done this, there's always going to be room for improvement. If we're only focused on that, we're going to be miserable till we till we die. So we got to we got to take some time to smell the roses and just feel good. Um yeah, so I'm teaching people these kinds of principles uh of like, you know, what are the principles that if you actually embodied them, you would be able to solve your problems creatively in your own life. Um then you can take techniques and apply them from embodying this this way of being that's just very very good at solving problems, you know, and finding creative solutions. Uh, because if you take the techniques into a system, into somebody's sort of body-mind system where they don't have the frameworks, they don't have the frame of reference, then it's, it does, sometimes it doesn't really mesh for them. They're like, I don't get it. You know, why, would I, why would I look for a difference? Everything is just the same. Everything sucks forever. <laughs> like they're not noticing. This is so important. And it's, I think it's one of those things that's easily overlooked because of the tendencies you mentioned. I mean, um, slowing down and actually um, taking the time to do what you're saying, you know, to, to mention and to really start to filter for those things that have changed, the things that are going well. Uh, if, yeah. if you, they just hear it, just, mm-hmm. just, a, you know, hey, this is important. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But can we get to the problem? <laughs> Yeah, totally. But like when you force them, of course, uh, when you emphasize it and (laughs) structure it, yes, you structure it in such a way that 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 it's like, no, 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 that that is the next section. The section that's what we're doing right now. We're actually gonna spend some time focusing on that. Then they they have to settle in a little bit to okay, well, we're not gonna move to the problem yet. Let me just stay focused. And then all of a sudden they discover things because they're not looking. Until they look. Uh, I find that all of my clients discover things. Yeah, they're like, nothing good happened. Okay, let me think about it. Oh, here's five good things that happened. Yeah. And it's like, have you really taken the time to feel good about those things? Most people, we have not. We're too busy. Go on to the next thing. You know? When you're, um, and then, yeah. 
No, I was just going to say you're bringing to mind another definition of NLP because you know you said, hey, there's there are a lot of definitions of NLP, and that's so true. There's another definition that I that I have been finding a lot of use out of, um, influenced heavily by my own mentor. But it's this uh, NLP is a meta perspective on a wide variety of topics, not just therapy, uh, because mm-hmm. NLP is not it's NLP is not the applications of NLP. NLP is is uh, right. an approach, a way of, of, of looking at things. And it's a meta perspective that um, emphasizes ob- the observation of patterns within human experience, subjective experience, and then subsequently utilizing those patterns to create changes, meaningful mm-hmm. changes. So I like that definition too, because it's, it's like yet again, another example of how broad you could take this topic, you know, it, mm-hmm to make improvements in your life by looking at the patterns in it and then using those patterns to make more changes. Totally. Yeah. Whatever you want to call that process. I think that's a very useful and important process. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And there's, yeah, meta patterns. I think people miss that because it's, it's sophisticated and it's hard to, hard to see, but, um, but that's what I'm noticing more and more in my clients too. It's like, there's these meta patterns that are preventing change and if they had those things sort of installed already or you know practiced in their mind um they maybe wouldn't even need the nlp techniques they'd figure out some way to solve their own problem and so to me i'm going yeah at a different level now i'm trying to help people notice what's working notice the change the difference uh feel like it's safe and interesting to try new things and fail at them oh man that is a big one like if people already have that they wouldn't need to hire me. Probably they would just be trying things, yeah. uh, which would be great. Um, you know, that's been a big one for me. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they'd be interested just to get curious, you know, or what, what I'd add to it, but they, they, you know, they'd be experimenting themselves. Um, I am just, I'm, I'm amazed, but this is something that's in NLP. It's just the sort of attitude of experimenting and trying things and seeing and testing and seeing what feedback you get. Um, but the funny thing is, even for me, that wasn't generalizing beyond coaching until recently. I've been trying to actively extend that attitude beyond coaching. Um, like one thing I tried in 2022 was making short vertical videos for TikTok and so on. Uh, because other coaches were like, we're getting lots of clients from TikTok. I'm like, TikTok, really? Isn't that just like, like young kids dancing? Like, what the, what the heck is TikTok? Like, I'm way too old for this shit, but no, they were like, you got to get on TikTok. So I'm like, okay, I'll try it out. I've never made short videos on anything. Let's see if I can do this. Uh, super nerve wracking, you know, uncomfortable. I'd been a presenter at conferences, but on video, ugh, just by myself talking to a camera, I could talk to you guys, very comfortable, but talking to a camera, what the hell? Um, so I knew I had to reprogram my brain around this uh, because when I when I made a, a short video, I looked, I watched it back, and I was like, "Oh God, it's terrible!" Right? Yeah, you can't walk. Toddler can't walk. What's wrong with you? Right? I was doing that to myself. Uh, so I decided I would reprogram my brain. This is how I do it. Very simply, uh, I I was like, I just got to practice showing up on camera. So I put up my my phone, right, and I stood in front of it, and I recorded for sixty seconds, and I watched it back. And my brain goes, blah, terrible, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, let's put those thoughts aside for a moment. 
what's three things I like about it? Genuinely can appreciate about what I just did. All right. Well, I showed up. Yay. Um, my lighting was actually pretty good. I had a nice ring light. Yay. Uh, and the audio is good. I'm using a, you know, using a, a lav mic. Okay. All right. Do it again. Another one minute. Do it. Watch it back. Well, three things I like about it. Uh, and then one thing to improve for the next take. One thing to improve for the next take. Uh, so three more things I liked. And then it was like, I'm scrunching up my forehead in this weird way. Like, what am I doing? Let's see if I can relax my forehead. Try it again. Watch it back. I forgot entirely to relax my forehead. Try it again. But each time, three things I liked about it. And just one thing, not all the things that are wrong with it. Just one thing that I could do better for the next time or differently. Um, I now have 116 TikTok videos up. Uh, they're doing pretty well, surprising to me. Um, and, uh, and I enjoy the process. That was my goal. Can I get to the point where I enjoy the process of making videos? Um, because I know it's going to take a while to be consistent enough to then be good enough to then get results that I want. Uh, but this is true of so many things, right? Like anything we really want to take on long-term that we're not doing now, probably we don't enjoy the process right now. <laughs> it probably sucks. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, you want to write a book and you're like, writing sucks. Like you're never going to write a book. You're never going to get through it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, um, you're reminding me of like a metaphor um, to do with playing video games. Uh, now, granted, not everyone <laughs> likes video games, but yeah. it, you could definitely say that a lot of people love playing video games and you're never good at the video game when you start it because you know you get oh, no. first person shooter game you're going to get killed right away or if you you know <laughs> if it's a racing game you're going to crash the car it's going to happen over and over again and and it, people don't sit there and say i i give up if they're a video game person they go oh my god let's do it again hit the reset button and they're just at mm -hmm. it and then eventually they get past that level and then to the next level and the next level until they uh you know theoretically uh finish the you know all the levels of a game or whatever then um mm -hmm. so so that that example to me is perfect because it's it's like they they have a frame of reference that says um I'm here to play the game and try to beat it I'm not here mm -hmm to um, overly concern over myself when I lose, I'm just going to keep at it until I beat the the game or whatever. Mm. That's, that's right. And they get yeah. better and better at it along the way. You know, Carlos, I was going to say, wouldn't that be fun to design a bunch of video games that instead of, you know, shooter games and race car games, right? That it actually lets you practice making life decisions. Absolutely. Like, 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 create a Taoist game, you yeah. get into a situation, you handle it wrong, then you learn a lesson yeah. from the Tao, right? Yeah. And then, oh man, start over and That's try it again. Then you learn those lessons <laughs> and keep going to higher and higher, higher, higher levels or, or, you know, whatever it might be in life, you know? Yeah. That'd be that'd wonderful. Be yeah. We yeah. need more games yeah. like that, Satch. We definitely we do. do. No question. Yeah. yeah. yeah Taoist yeah, gamers. Taoist yeah. gamers. Gamifying <laughs> things is probably one of the best things we can do to, to, to make it fun yeah. and focused. Yeah, and what is gamifying? Yeah, the what is gamifying? Just creating a different structure of doing the thing that's more enjoyable. Yeah, that, you know where you are actually enjoying the process. Um, you know, because so many things in life, like uh, you know, there's there's something we want in the future, and it, we think if you know, at some level, if I get that thing, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied or at peace, right? Um, and then you know, 
some different scenarios could take place. One is we could actually get the thing. We persist and we get it. Um, and then we're kind of like, meh, we're happy for like a moment. And then we're kind of just dissatisfied again. Um, and this is a very common situation. But of course, maybe don't even get the thing. Right? You struggle and you struggle and you struggle and you don't even get it. Um, and so is it really worth sacrifice? intense painful sacrifice the whole way to your goal if when you get it you're not even that satisfied or maybe you don't even get it maybe there's a better way maybe there's a better way where we could enjoy the process or at least not burn out you know have a little bit of fun make us come more alive more playful more curious uh as we're doing the thing as we're pursuing the thing uh that's that's my theory, at least. That's a that's a thesis for my new book, "The Joy of Doing," that I'm writing now. But um, can't wait to get into this. I know. Yeah. I, I was I was just gonna, I was saying you're sounding you're sounding very Taoist, Duff. Oh, sounding very Taoist. Very Wu oh. Wei here. Mm-hmm. Everything we're talking about seems to be preframes for this book that you're talking about. So I look forward <laughs> to, uh, to diving into that. Um, Duff, you you are writing this book, "The Joy mm-hmm. of Doing." Great title. Um, Joy of Doing. Yeah. What's prompted you to write this book? First of all. Yeah, so a number of things. So years, a few years ago, actually, it's sort of right before the pandemic, maybe. Um, I was thinking about niching as a coach because everyone's like, you know, in order to be successful as a coach, you got to have a niche, a certain group of people you work with, and uh, you know, specialize. And I've been resistant to this for a long time because I like I'm a broad thinker. I was a philosophy major. I like to think about all of human life. <laughs> uh, but you know, I was like, okay, fine, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll think about what could be a niche. Um, and I realized, like, what do what do all of my clients have in common that I've loved working with? Or what are some of the things they have in common? Um, I thought through and I thought through and I thought through for a long time. And I was like, I think all of my clients are really creative people who have, like, cool ideas for things they want to do. Um, and they're struggling to do those things. That's like, a, that's just a theme that I see again and again. Uh, you might call those people neurodivergent, uh, you know have ADHD or autism spectrum or Tourette syndrome, or just think different as the old Apple commercials used to say. Uh, And so, uh, you know, neurodiversity is one frame. I look at that or just creativity, creative people, people who are not necessarily doing the nine to five normal thing. Uh, You know, so I think all three of us would probably qualify. Uh, And, (laughs) and many of our, our listeners probably. Uh, So, People like that tend to have similar problems. They have big ideas, maybe way too many ideas because they're creative and they're generating ideas all the time. This is true of me, at least. Uh, and turning those ideas into practical actions that I can take today and tomorrow and the next day and so on and actually achieve the goal, there's a gap there. Right? There's just kind of a gap or, or challenges. Um, so my wife was in uh, grad school during the pandemic getting a master's degree in user experience design. Uh, which is basically uh, making making things that humans design more user friendly, mm. whether that's apps or websites. Uh, sometimes could be physical objects as well. Um, but human beings, we design things, and sometimes they're designed badly. We all know that, right? Um, so anyway, she had a project where she needed to work with something, and she was like, "Can I do something for your business?" I'm like, "I don't know. I don't have an app. My website's really simple." It's like, what if we did a kind of user research with your target niche audience? Uh, creative people who are struggling to do their big thing, and we'll figure out like what's the, what's the breakdown in their productivity system here, right? You know, how how are they doing this? 
Um, I thought the answer was going to be very simple. They just needed sort of some support for co-working, just like someone to sit down with them and be like, all right, what are you working on this hour? I'm working on this. All right, check in at the end of the hour. And there's some systems for that, like focusmate.com, which I use for co-working and uh, very helpful. Uh, but as it turned out, um, she, we did sort of an open-ended interviews. My wife did like a bunch of interviews, like maybe a dozen with different people. There's breakdowns at every level with creative people <laughs> from how we think about goals to our productivity system, which may or may not be just a pile of sticky notes um, or digitally version of that, uh, to how we use our calendar, how we manage our time. Like everything is just a mess oftentimes with creative people because <laughs> we don't do any of those things in a standard way. And we have way too many ideas for things to do and it overwhelms our system and so on. Uh, so anyway, after pondering the data for a long time from this user research, it took me months uh, before I came up with an idea of like, how do I make sense of this in a way that's useful to people? Um, and finally dawned on me, whenever we do something, we have three stages of doing that thing. We have to sort of start the thing. Uh, we focus on the thing, do actually doing the thing. And then we finish doing the thing and maybe ship it off, right? Uh, start, focus, finish call it the productivity engine. And then I realized all the standard productivity advice out there, the, the main systems out there, assume you can already easily start, focus, and finish. True. Just like if you're a procrastinator and you, you take up David Allen's getting things done, you're going to procrastinate much worse because now you've collected all of the things that you could do and you put them into a well-organized list and you're spending all of your time collecting and organizing those things and, and processing your email inboxes and you're spending almost no time doing the stuff, right? Uh, and so this is true of many different systems. Start, focus, and finish. And when I, when I say that to people who are stuck, they're like, yes, this makes sense to me. I have problems with all three or two out of three or just starting or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's because some people procrastinate or have trouble starting. Some people, when they're focusing, they're, they're bouncing around to other ideas. They can't stay on task. Mm -hmm. And some people, they get to the, the, almost the finish line and they can't, they can't publish the thing, right? They have like seven books sitting on their shelves that are digitally, that are 95% complete and they can't pull the trigger. How did you know uh, all this about me, Andrew? <laughs> I know, right? It's all I, I just studied Carlos in secret. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. When I tell people this, they're like, wow, like I feel seen. I'm not the only one. Because mm -hmm. um, one of the themes that came up in the research too was shame. Everyone felt terrible about themselves. They yeah. couldn't figure this out. Um, and I realized, like, no, it's not about you. It's like just all creative people are kind of this this way. Um, and there hasn't been a system up until now to understand what's going on. Uh, so start, focus, finish is helpful to identify the, the where the problem is taking place. And then you can chunk it down. You can say, okay, well, I'm just going to, like, I have problems with starting. So I'm just going to work on that until I can start things and not worry about whether I can focus or complete them yet. I'm just going to try to get good at starting. Uh, and I tried this for a while. I used an affirmation. I can easily get started. 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 And I said this over and over 500 or a thousand times a day. Uh, <laughs> for a few weeks <laughs> and use visualization to imagine different things that I wanted to do that I would often have difficulty getting started, like from checking my email to washing the dishes to writing to working on marketing emails. 
And I just imagined the first like five seconds in my head. And I was like, yeah, you're right. The first five seconds of anything are pretty easy. Um, you know, I'm not like deadlifting 500 pounds here. I'm just like turning on the tap and getting some hot water to come out for washing dishes. I'm just like literally like moving my index finger on a trackpad and touching it. Like that's really easy. Uh, <laughs> so I started reframing in my mind that starting anything is incredibly easy. Uh, because I had this belief before, starting is hard. I'm bad at starting. I'm a procrastinator. You know, so I was working on that for a while, uh, and I worked on focus with uh, this thing called FocusMate.com, where you can co-work with people for 50 minutes or 25 minutes, or now they have 75 minutes, just random people on video, and you say, "Hey, Carlos, what are you working on?" Oh, I'm going to be work writing my book for the next 25 minutes, writing a draft of chapter two. And then you go on mute and you check in at the end, seeing someone work, having just a tiny bit of accountability that radically improves my focus. Um, and I found for many creative people, they work better uh, with just that slight bit of co-working side by side. Um, in fact, there's a idea in NLP that explains this. Um, Shelley Rose Charvet, a NLP trainer in Canada who does stuff with meta programs. Um, she has a book called Words That Change Minds. And one of the distinctions she has is working styles. So working styles are how do you prefer to do things? Mm. Uh, and there's three basic working styles in her model. First one is independent. That's leave me alone. I'll get this to you when I'm done. Classic uh, computer programmer, software developers are often independent. Uh, proximity which is like working sort of next to someone in an open office or on Focusmate, having some accountability for what you're doing, some very clear ideas of what you're working on, uh, but mostly just like sitting next to each other and checking in once in a while. Uh, and then collaborative. Collaborative is like, let's jump, uh, you know, let's, let's go into a conference room with a whiteboard and, and think this through together or jump on Zoom and think this through together. Uh, 80% of people are proximity in her research. In general, they like to work next to people and have clear understanding of what they're doing. Hmm. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was suddenly working from home independent and I couldn't get anything done. I was like, what is wrong with me? Hmm. Talking about shame. I was like, I can't, I can't get anything done. I know it's the beginning of the pandemic. I'm doom scrolling, you know, to understand what's happening, but like, why can't I get anything done? And then I learned about Focusmate and suddenly I'm like, this is the most productive I've ever been in my life. Nice. What is happening? This is so simple. <clears throat> um, you know, and I tried the Pomodoro technique before where you set a timer for 25 minutes and you have one thing that you work on. I could do my for like a day or two and then I drop off. Uh, but with another human there that I have to say what I'm doing, I'm incredibly focused. Hmm. Uh, and that's true for most people. That's why people go to gyms. You could buy all the equipment you'd need for the rest of your life for you know a few thousand dollars, save some money, just put up a gym in your house. Uh, but most people like to go to the gym because when you go to the gym, that's socially where you work out. Right? Everybody else is working out. Nobody here is just binging Netflix. Uh, whereas at home, Netflix seems more appealing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so then uh, people are also have working styles based on activity. Like for me, when I'm writing, I like to either be independent. Proximity is okay. Um, but I also often get in the zone for hours. I don't want anyone interrupting me. Very annoying. Mm -hmm. I get interrupted when I'm writing. Uh, whereas writing marketing emails, I, I, proximity is great. You know, 
Um, and, uh, yeah. And for planning certain things, I really like collaborative. Like I, I sometimes can't think through or prioritize very well, uh, unless I have another human there thinking through with me. You know, Duff, um, I, I was, I was going to say, um, as you were describing these, these three styles of, um, of, of working, <clears throat> um, since, uh, I think you said what 80% are, uh, uh, proximity based, right? And that reminds me of, um, uh, you know, when when humans are developing, um, we're, we're we're not born with automatic social skills, right? We have to learn how to interact with other, other humans as as we grow, mm-hmm. just like we have to learn to interact with everything else in the environment. And um, um, when when children are developing, uh, you know, play is an extremely important concept. Right. And, uh, the, the, the first step in play is children play on their own. So when, Mm -hmm. when children are very, very young, they have to play on their own. If you put them in proximity to other children, um, they're not able to interact with each other. Mm. Right. Or somebody's going to end up crying, right. Because they steal each other's toys and somebody gets gouged in the cheek. Right. Um, so, uh, the, the the first stage is independent play. The mm. second stage is parallel play. Parallel play, where, yes. Where, where where two children are playing their own thing, but they're playing within the presence of each other, mm-hmm. and that's the precursor to inter- interactive play that mm. happens later. And and I couldn't help but think as you were describing that so well, it was just like strumming chords inside mm. me. Right? Mm. I'm like, yeah, because we all choose a different method of working depending on what it is we're working on, right? There are certain things that I would do better uh, with proximity to other people, yet there are other things that I would do better collaboratively and other types of topics that I would do better on my own. Like if I'm a pro, just leave me alone, I'll do it, right? Totally. Um, And uh, it seems like if if we were to look at that from a developmental perspective, Mm. that if 80% of the people need proximity to do their best work it seems like there's there's a natural evolution there we have to if you don't parallel play you can never get to interactive play yeah if we don't if we don't parallel or proximity work we can never get to that true interactive you know yeah style of work so it's almost like a developmental continuum to me Mm -hmm. yes yeah there's a lot in there um yeah so parallel play is often uh how people on the autism spectrum talk about how they like to do entertainment yeah, yeah. Uh, is to do their own thing uh, in a room with somebody else is also doing their own thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is also very interesting because a lot of my creative uh, clients are possibly on the spectrum. Not all are, you know, diagnosed, but you know, self-diagnosed sometimes and, or overlap with ADHD and so on. Um, but one thing I've found that's incredibly consistent among procrastinators is procrastinators do not procrastinate if they have proximity, uh, mm-hmm. if they have. Mm-hmm parallel prelay we might call it you know if someone's in the room who says uh you know and the, and the procrastinator says you know i have been really struggling to write my paper will you sit next to me and do something else that's unrelated for half an hour while i write a little bit they will be fine they really do just fine yeah yeah uh, uh you know so so to me like and procrastination is such a shameful problem that people have they feel so bad about themselves what's wrong with me and they beat themselves up and they go into depression and so on uh, but sometimes it's a simple fix, which is wild. Uh, not always. Now, sometimes there's other things going on, like chronic fatigue or motivation issues and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's a huge, hugely reliable thing to say, get on focus, mate, 
and work on this with another human there. And if my client will actually do it, <laughs> then they find they have no problem at all doing things during a focus mate session. They're not procrastinating mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Uh, they might put off the, the focus mate. But, mm-hmm. Or if I sometimes right in the session, I'll be like, okay, what are you procrastinating? Uh, I'm going to set a timer for five minutes. Do you want to work on it for five minutes with me? And they'll go, oh, yeah, okay, sure. And we'll just get started. And then they they won't want to stop after five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's yeah. super easy, I, actually, to resolve this problem. As long as you I ha- think outside of the box of your own individuality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I had uh, read of research that shows that um, if people begin doing a task that they find unpleasant, uh, after several minutes of doing it, they actually start to pr- produce, you know, happy chemistry in their body yeah. and they actually begin to enjoy the thing that they didn't want to start. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. It, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's true. And I, and I've applied that to myself many, 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 many times, you know, going to school for years, you know, there were so many things I didn't want to do, but oh, I always yeah. remembered that research. Yeah. But if I just start in a little while, mm-hmm. I'll start to feel good about this. And next right. thing you know, I'm like, look at that. I am feeling good about writing this paper <laughs> or, or finishing this chapter or something totally. like that. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a phenomenal thing to experience when you know to look for it. Right. Yeah. And I was a severe procrastinator in some ways, you know, still have some lingering elements of that, but man, I've improved like 95%. Uh, you know, I failed several classes in college because I couldn't get myself to put words on the page for the final paper uh, and just could not turn in a paper. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and it was awful. Yeah. It was an awful feeling because I wanted to do it. It wasn't that I wasn't motivated. I was highly motivated. I wanted to do the thing but I was just frozen, uh, you know, and I, we didn't have focus made at that time, but I had, I known that sort of thing. I could have gone to a coffee shop or a library and just, you know, or had a friend and say, could you sit next to me for 30 minutes while I put some words on the paper? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, I'm glad you're mentioning this, this, this focus mate. This is becoming a, uh, um, yeah. becoming an advertisement for them. <laughs> I know. Um, going to be sponsored for the next episode. But I'm telling you, I, I have lots of students that are, are, are in that very situation where it's like, I'm, I'm seeing their grades yeah. plummet. Yep. And talk to them totally. about it, and and they just can't get started on things. They can't. It's yeah. like just I'm going to recommend that. You know, that's yeah. Focusmate.com. Lots of students on there. Lots of PhD students writing their dissertation that I'll pair up with, mm-hmm. or entrepreneurs doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. What it really comes back to me is just you know in personal development, in self help. There's an overemphasis on the personal and the self. You know, we mm-hmm. we need each other. We're social beings. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're maybe two hundred thousand years old in the evolutionary chain here. Right, a little right. little more, a little less. But you know, for most of those years, we wouldn't have done anything alone. Yeah, in a tribe of a hundred to one hundred fifty people, like who goes out and hunts hunts woolly mammoths by themselves, or goes you know berry picking while there's tigers around? Like we would yeah. not have done that. Dead man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there, there have been times when Carlos and I have just gotten together and Carlos, you've even recommended this a couple of times, like, Hey, just come over and let's just work, work on whatever things we need to work on. Yeah. yeah. We, we've done that. And actually that's something I miss. I've been thinking maybe we should do that a little more often once, you know, a little, I, once in a while, let's do it. You know, it's better than yeah. the, than the coffee shop for me because I'm so, yeah. uh, I've developed hyper vigilance. Uh, and mm-hmm. so it's, if I hear a change or sense a, sense a change in the environment, uh, usually it's from hearing, but mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's mm-hmm. from peripheral view. I have to break what I'm doing and sort of this is kind mm-hmm. of like a have to thing that my nervous system thinks that it needs to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it's so wired into me deeply mm-hmm. that um, 
I get a lot of hit and miss when it comes to going to a coffee shop. And yet yeah. it always appeals to me to go because I think the concept of a coffee shop is that I'm getting out of my house and it's going to force me to, uh, or not even force me, but just maybe put me in a place where I'm not going to be mm-hmm. distracted by my home distractions. Exactly. Like going and, to the gym. Yeah. Like going you to the could gym. buy a squat thing. rack and just put it in the corner of your living room. But then, yeah. you know, yeah. the sound. I know somebody and, did that. <laughs> constant changing in the environment causes me to break away from yeah. what I'm doing. And then I'm, I'm yeah. certainly not getting the shit done. So if I go, if yeah. I did something like, like that, like hanging out with Satch, if we hung out yeah. or, I have my friend Anna who comes over sometimes or sometimes. Co-working. You're working on your own thing in proximity yeah. and you're checking in once an hour and, and make setting an intention. I think it's really important to set an intention and check in as part of that ritual. I cannot you know. do it if there's a TV going on in the background at all. No, mm-hmm. I can't. I can't even, even if I'm not interested in it. It doesn't matter whether I'm interested in it or not. It's just so distracting. Oh my God, me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. But this is also common in creative people uh, in neurodivergent people. Uh, you know, I am finally admitting to myself in the last year or so that I have always been autistic and still am, uh, but don't necessarily display all of the signs of autism anymore because I've really worked on myself and I've covered over with layers of inauthentic masking, which I'm trying to peel back. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> uh, oh, you admit that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, on the authenticity show here. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so neurodivergent people or neurodiversity includes a wide variety of people. Uh, but neurodivergence, part of what it is, is often a sensory sensitivity. Uh, so in NLP, we talk about, and in neuroscience and in cognitive science, our nervous system filters out most of the information coming in through our senses uh, because it's it's just sort of noise. We don't need to notice everything all the time. You know, so like many people, they go to a coffee shop and they don't even notice the din of the espresso machine in their ear, which is right here. Mm-hmm. You know, but Carlos goes and he's like, ah, you know, yeah, right, right. Uh, so he notices that. And I noticed that it's super annoying. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, depending on the person, certain things filter out more easily than others. Uh, you know, like when I really get into the zone and some people have this experience too, when I get really into the zone, like writing or something like that, someone calls my name, I won't even hear it. It's just gone. Mm. Right? I'm in a trance state. Uh, and so, uh, but people who are neurodivergent, they're often because uh, one of the key things is, is that we have some sensory sensitivity in one or more of the channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, touch was a big one growing up. Uh, I was very sensitive to touch. Like people would hug me and I'm like, ah super annoying how they're hugging me. Now, I actually really love touch. I married a massage therapist uh, who then became a user experience designer. Uh, But I was more sensitive to it. And most people's sense of touch is really not that great compared to, say, a trained professional. Yeah. Um, So like in in your case, it's it's amplified in a way. You experience touch more amplified than a, a, a typical person would. Yeah, at least at the time it was, um, and it has changed over time. You know, uh, Satch, you're an occupational therapist, so you probably know of, uh, of specific methods that would help yeah. oh, people yeah. who are sensitive sensitive to uh, to do this. Like, um, yeah, I don't, the... I'm not a professional, but I've heard like you know, like with autistic kids, they have a, oh, what is it called? 
Oh, there's so, something where they can't be touched. It's like sensory defensiveness. Yeah, yeah, tactile defensiveness. Yeah, right. Tactile. Defensiveness. So yeah, we we in occupational therapy just real quick. We we use a a, a frame of reference. We were talking about <laughs> frames of reference called the sensory integration frame of reference. And so yes, it, it basically takes the idea that if if a human is a black box, it uses a open kind of an open systems theory. The human's a black box. Then there's there's input, throughput, output, and feedback. And so um, whatever's going on inside that box is the nervous system's ability to self-modulate all the different sensations that are coming in. And so then what we do is we carefully select which sensations we want to feed into the system to allow the black box to make an adaptive response. Yes. And, you know, so that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. So uh, when someone has more sensitivity, this is my theory, maybe it's true or not. Uh, <laughs> when somebody has more sensitivity, talking about sensory processing or sensory integration, like it takes more time to process and integrate. Uh, or maybe even, you know, specific methods that that person hasn't been taught yet. Uh, so for me, like one of the weird things is my intuition over the years has led me to things that I think have led to sensory integration. Mm. Um, like I was very sensitive to touch and couldn't handle that. And what did I do? I did thousands of hours of body scan Vipassana meditation uh, where I noticed the sensations in my body with equanimity. And yeah. Us and, too. Uh, us too. Yep. Right. Yeah. And that changed how my body processes things it also changed all my emotions and so on but um and then what else did i do oh i went out dancing i was like just drawn towards spontaneous improvised friday night dance therapy i called it i go out i'd be totally sober and i'd go to the club and i'd listen to loud music and i tried to dance uh which was very hard for me i was very uncoordinated growing up i'd bump into things i I tried out for the basketball team in high school. I was obsessed with basketball. I was shooting hoops hours a day. Got cut from the basketball team, even though I'm 6'5", because uh, I was just so uncoordinated. I, I had a terrible shot. Uh, but I did thousands and thousands of hours of ecstatic dance. And then I became coordinated through that. And uh, and then I also got obsessed with juggling, which is a coordination thing. Mm -hmm. And I juggle in college for like an hour or two a day. And then afterwards, my body would be buzzing. And I would just like lie there wow. and just be like just... And something was happening in my nervous system, creating more connections. It and all that like, helped me over time. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like you were doing self-occupational therapy. I know. Find, I didn't even you know. An, <laughs> you find an occupation, which is a a, a, a valued activity that um, you're, you're self-motivated to do. Totally. And then you do it and there's healing power in that. That's exactly yeah. what you did. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had the autistic special interest obsession uh, that just like, it's like, I have to juggle for two hours a night now. I don't know why. Okay, here we go. Uh, wow. <laughs> that's great. That's amazing. So I do that yeah. instead of my philosophy papers. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> somehow still graduated. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> but yeah, so there's, I think there's a wisdom in the body. Uh, you know, in the intuition here that if we're really listening, really paying attention can lead us in directions that we we don't even know why they're good for us. Uh, but they're often weird, especially if, you know, if we're a little weird, we're a little neurodivergent or, or unique as individuals. Um, you know, like Carlos, I, I don't know if 30 years ago, you'd be like, I'm going to get involved in in plant medicines or Tai Chi or whatever else, you know, like, Maybe that would have been like, that's a little too weird. I don't know. 
Maybe, well, maybe 40 years ago. Yeah, 40, oh, 40 years, years ago. ago. I started about yeah, 33 years, years ago. So oh, okay. Not- never mind. Never mind. So you started young. You started, I you did. went, you took your, uh, you took your 18. path and you went for it. I was 18. Yeah. Which is great. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of us, uh, you know, we're too shy to really go on the path that's calling us, uh, whatever that is in terms of what's really authentic for us in terms about the, the authenticity show. Once again, uh, yeah, I mean, I run into this all the time. Like, uh, I had a client recently who came to me basically presenting with burnout, right? Burnout, they're in a high pressure field, uh, a creative person in a creative field, but very high pressure. I, I'm listening. Um, I'm yes. Listening. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and one of the things I, I immediately said to them was like, okay, what's your creative outlet? What do you do for a creative outlet? And they said, oh, you know, I'm just too busy for that. But I do have projects or ideas. Maybe next year, you know, a year from now, I can we can handle all, all the things on my plate and then we can get to it. I'm like, okay. You know, and I just kept bringing it up. Like, sounds like you need a creative outlet. And, you know, by the third or fourth session, they were actually open now to to doing that. And um, and they'd always wanted to make a video game. And so I was like, well, what's stopping you from looking into that today, this week, like for just 15 minutes, an hour. Uh, and they were like, you're a good point. But, you know, the way they brought it up was like, oh, this is going to sound really stupid. Oh, it's, mm. it's childish. Uh, this is, mm. And I had to like draw it out of them. And then it was like, they, they told me how video games had changed their life, actually. Because wow. there was this really hard video game. There was this really hard video game they had played years ago. And apparently lots of people have found the same experience with this specific video game. It was so hard that they actually, the process of persisting and beating the game pulled them out of a depressive kind of self-esteem hmm. funk. Wow. Hmm. Do you know the name like of this game? Dark Souls is the game specifically. Hmm. Dark Souls. I've never played Dark Souls, but apparently it's it's brutal. In terms of difficulty level, and there's no easy setting. It's just right off the bat, like so hard. Real life, huh? Yeah. yeah. And it takes, you know, weeks or months to beat. And then it's like like you feel like you ran a marathon in terms of the intensity of the thing. Mm. Um, and most games don't do that anymore, right? They have easy levels and so on. They they gradually move you up. Uh, but there's something about overcoming that challenge that multiple people have found with this particular game that it pulled them out of like feeling bad about themselves, like they were just a terrible person or depressed and so on. Um, so anyway, this, you know, it's like this project of making a video game was actually deeply meaningful for this person, but they were like, no, it's not okay. I can't do, I can't do that. And it's like, well, why not? Like, that's what your, I mean, that's where your heart is calling you, right? You know, like, why wouldn't you do that? Um, but I think most of us are like that a lot of times. It's like, oh, that's too weird, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, that's not okay for me to do the the weird the weird thing that I really want. Uh, there's there's that sh- there's that shame you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. and so it's big. burying it's burying the curiosity and the the play and the confidence. Exactly. Yeah, it's stifling the expression of confidence. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's so that's a good point, Carlos. It's it's almost like shame is. Um, when confidence is inflamed, you know, <laughs> confidence itis, you know, is shame. Basically, you know? yeah, it's very inflammatory, I think. Inflammatory. You know, yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You were talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, the, the failure and the fear of failure and the negative mm-hmm. attitudes that people have about um, failure. And I, I just wanted to add this additional point that 
um, was um, driven home by listening to the Andrew Huberman Huberman Lab uh, podcast, mm. which is loaded with fun stuff for anybody who hasn't heard it. Um, it it's geeky and it's fun and it's 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 um, mm. presented at a level that 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 you don't have to be a, a neuroscientist to enjoy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, totally. great for people like us who are coaches and teachers and, you know, that kind of stuff. Love Huberman's podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Super good. And, and, uh, I, um, he mentioned about failure and about the whole concept of neuroplasticity and how important failure is to neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is this big thing mm-hmm. nowadays that for the last at least 20 years, we've been, it's been, uh, spoken about, wrote, written about, and so on. And it's really, for those who don't know, it's the it's the brain's ability to change itself, you know, to grow and adapt and and mm-hmm. so forth. It's the root of addictions as much as it's the root of uh, healing and transformation. So uh, it's really involved in that. And he said that you know when you're learning a piano, each time you fail, if you continue at that practice, um, the effort to continue trying to get through that scale or get through that difficult piece, your brain redoubles its effort and it ends up producing more. Uh, brain cells, it, it starts to force mm. certain pathways and kind of forge its way through the forest, if you will, to create smoothness of that experience. So eventually it's it's something that you have um, unconscious competence at. Uh, so I try to frame with people a lot that the the failure is, is something that you should um, begin to accept and maybe even enjoy as a necessary sort of mm-hmm. step before you get to the unconscious competency stage. That's right. So failure itself is actually, you can just tell yourself, reframe that the failure is building brain cells. It's bearing, building neurons. Mm-hmm. It's reinforcing your experience. It's redoubling your efforts. It's making you um, refocus to become better. So mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I started a coaching group recently. Uh, and one of our, our main themes is making it safe to fail. Um, uh, and this is this is uh, something based on a weekly accountability group doing a couple of years here with some friends. And, uh, you know, we started with eight people in week one of January 2021. Uh, by week three, we had three people. We had lost more than 50% of our people from our weekly accountability group uh, because people didn't do the thing they said. And the last thing they wanted was accountability, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> ironically. Uh, so we realized, even though we had framed the whole thing, it's like, you know, this is, this is, we're not, you know, beat anybody up for failing. Uh, we have such internalized this idea, I think, that we feel so bad. So I created a uh, a cheer, a cheer for failure. It goes like this. So if people can, if you're in a reframe, you could re- use Carlos's reframe. So you could use this one. Failure is good. Failure is fun. When it comes to failing, we're number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bunch of losers. Yeah. Yeah, we're the best losers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we want a loser championship. Week- yeah. We do that in my weekly accountability group. Whenever we fail at anything, we uh, we do the cheer. Uh, and we have the foam finger. Got to get the foam finger. My my little uh, nephew um, was really, really... He's, he's, uh, he's about nine and he was performing really well in a soccer game and he's a little guy, but he's so fast. And we're talking, uh, Satch, I'm talking about Jake. Yeah. That's what I, was, I figured it was Jake. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you know, his team won the championship, uh, and then they went on to this other team that was challenging others that had won the championship and, and he, they got like second place or something like that on that. So they first wow. place won and so, and he was disappointed because, you know, he said, you know, he lost. And I said, well, 
first of all, uh, number one, you are kicking ass, little guy. Like you, mm-hmm. you run so hard. You, you, um, you, you hustle when the coach and you never stop. I said, that's what I'm really proud of you about is, is all that mm-hmm. effort and all that determination. That's what's most important. Cause there's going to be other games. I said, but secondly, I said, um, and this is something I learned from James Tripp, actually. Um, Love James Tripp. You really lose the championship. You just didn't win because mm-hmm. you didn't have it in the first place. How can you lose something if you didn't have it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so he's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know? And, and I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you did great. And you won the second place is what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah totally. Yeah. Next time you'll win third That's place. Nice. Who knows? You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You didn't yeah. lose anything. Yeah, these kinds of reframes and then the athlete, uh, very helpful stuff. I think it's it's helpful just to even realize that it's very normal to yeah. have a fear of failure and feel shame if you, you know, fail at something like just even normalizing that and feeling like, oh, I'm not the only one. Which yeah. is why I started a coaching group to, you know, to actually get people together so they could all be like, oh, wait, we're all dealing with this. Okay, this isn't just me. because uh, mm-hmm. everybody goes, so it's just me, it's just me, uh, which is ridiculous. It's a human thing. Mm. Uh, and it's a human thing because I think of how we've set up schooling and parenting and society. Uh, so there's there's room for improvement on the uh, in the larger sphere here too. Um, you know, like like what if we optimize school for the enjoyment of the learning process uh, yeah. rather than for grades? and and you know, we tried to measure creativity and and curiosity and and that was what we tried to maximize. Um, you know, obviously we have to learn and, and teach very specific curriculums to blah, 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 and meet these goals. But I'd have you know, three the same thing with, now if you did that, <laughs> I know, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. Easily. <laughs> I know. Like we're all, we're all lifelong learners and so many creative people are. Um, and then, you know, some of us shut that down. I think human beings are lifelong learners, but some of us shut that down because we're scared, uh, you know, scared of not knowing and scared of failing and and trying to learn something and having it not work and so on um, and not being good enough. But that's the whole fixed mindset, growth mindset of Carol Dweck's research. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if you believe intelligence is fixed, then you probably won't apply yourself very hard, and you only take on the easy problems and so on. Mm-hmm. And if you believe intelligence is something that it can improve with effort and good strategies, uh, then you'll try harder, and you know because you can get smarter by working, working at it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's a whole it's a whole thing that. Uh, you know, we we get rigid in some ways as we age, just because we are afraid of what is out there. But there's good stuff out there. There's really cool stuff. There's aliveness out there. You know, I uh, just just this morning, uh, there, there's there's a, a little astrology app that Carlos had turned me on to. Um, it's CoStar, Carlos, right? And uh, this morning, it was last night or this morning. I I, I read it and it said, um, it gave a great idea. It said. Um, stretching is not only for your legs you can stretch friendships too i was like oh that's an interesting idea so just that idea of stretching you know stretch mm. stretch your intelligence stretch your mm. you know um right ideas you know it's not just for your legs basically right yeah, i like that. Oh, that's a good one because cool. i have a i have a i had a way that i like to stretch i don't always do this uh, and I should probably stretch a little bit more as I'm getting older here, but just make sure uh, you don't way... procrastinate on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but the way I like to stretch is um, I like to sort of move into the stretch until I just feel a little bit of stretch, right? Just a little bit of tension there. 
Uh, instead, I used to just keep pushing and pushing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. You know, now I just hang out there where I feel the stretch and I take three to five deep breaths without going any further. And then what I notice is it just releases very slowly. And I've, I'm comfortable in this range that was uncomfortable 20 seconds ago. Yeah. Now it's comfortable. Uh, so it didn't take long to expand my comfort zone. I didn't. I only had to leave it slightly, and then my comfort zone expanded. And then I'll go just slightly more into the stretch. Okay, slightly more, and then I'll stop and breathe there for three to five breaths, and I'll just release again. And I'll do this three or four times. Man, feels like I just got a massage. It's an amazing experience. Yeah. Uh, and I think that can be a metaphor for stretching ourselves in any direction. You know, there's so much emphasis in personal development on. Uh, you know, going hard or going home, pushing yourself. Yeah, uh, get out of your time and place zone. for that. Get out of your comfort you want, zone. It's outside of your comfort. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But what if we expanded our comfort zone? What if we grew our zone of comfort so more things were comfortable? Yeah. Uh, so we brought our resources with us rather than leaving our, our resourceful zone and going to an unresourceful zone to just feeling bad. Like, what if we just felt a tiny bit of discomfort or, or, you know, it doesn't even have to feel uncomfortable. It just can be like different, a different kind of sensation. Uh, but then expand and bring our resources with us, whether that's comfort or curiosity or courage or confidence. It has to start with C though. Um, and then expand that <laughs> so that we we have more things that we're comfortable with. Um, and, you know, that's actually been part of my own journey. Uh, growing up with autism without knowing that's what was going on. Everything was uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, from the tags in the back of my shirt to conversations with other humans mm -hmm. uh, and and much more. Uh, and so a lot of what I learned, I learned I learned cognitive behavioral therapy before I knew there was a term. Mm -hmm. Like I remember like feeling the fear and doing it anyway kind of stuff when I was in middle school. You know, I was like, I can feel the fear in my chest, in my belly. I'm going to breathe and tell myself, look, this is safe. This is actually okay. And then I'm going to do it slowly. Uh, and so there's there's ways we can do this and expand, uh, you know, that are very simple. It doesn't have to be even that complex as, you know, spinning feelings or anchoring or whatever the NLP stuff we want to do, alter the submodalities of the, and we don't have to do any, and we can do that. Uh, but some of these principles are really simple, just slowing down, and feeling and reminding yourself you're safe and taking a step forward anyway. It's, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of wisdom in a bottle right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true though. It's just simple, but um, oh, very yeah. effective. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I wanted to say one more thing about burnout, but Carlos, do you have something oh, yeah. to say? Oh, no, no. Uh, I can do that right after you. Okay. Yeah. yeah because Satch has mentioned he's listening, which yeah, is good. And there's that's probably right. someone else who's listening right now and can really hear these words. Uh, but uh, so burnout, I've been thinking a lot about burnout because I've burned out more than once. Uh, and this is very common with creative people, with neurodiversity, with neurodivergent people. Uh, burnout's a real theme. It's a, it's a common theme. Uh, and so, you know, the way I've been thinking about it is what's the design of work? And what direction does the design of your workday or the kind of work you're doing or how you're doing it where does that lead with your energy levels over time? Uh, burnout doesn't happen in a day, right? Like if you're feeling like you got tons of reserves and you even pull an all-nighter, you'll probably be okay. And that's why young people can pull all-nighters more than uh, us old folks here on the podcast. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but you know, like at what we're doing in life is either leading to slightly more energy and vitality over time and aliveness or slightly less energy and vitality and aliveness mm -hmm. over time. Um, and so like, can we redesign work or even just our own personal schedules uh, or the the attitude or intention we're bringing towards work that will guarantee increasing energy and aliveness over time? Uh, this is the question I've been asking myself for a couple of years, really, uh, when I was like, you know, the right problem to be solved in the productivity world is not how do I get more done or how do I do things more efficiently? Because you get more done, there's just more to do, endless yeah. amounts to do. The right problem to be solved is how do I get more energy and aliveness over time uh, mm -hmm. through doing? Yeah. Uh, so one way is making things more enjoyable, but also there's a huge conversation to be had here about rest and how do we actually rest and restore our energies? Uh, you know, you two are involved in Taoist ideas. Taoism, of course, has the idea of qigong, qi being vitality or energy or aliveness, and gong being work or practice. You know, so things that we do, what are things that we can do that increase our aliveness? That might mean breathing and moving your hands slowly and visualizing, which is what people generally think of when they think of qigong. Uh, but it might mean going for a run three times a week. Uh, it might mean uh, like lying down on the floor and feeling your body, sort of Vipassana style, body scan, uh, or just taking more breaks or honoring your limits or saying no to projects when you feel like you've got enough on your plate. Uh, or camping in nature, like there's a lot of ways we can restore our energies, but mm -hmm. um, but first we have to value it. Like we have to actually care about that, not just about the output of our productivity, but the input into our into our energy levels, into our soul, mm -hmm. into our <laughs> into our aliveness. Like investing, invest in rest is is my mm -hmm. expression for myself. I like that. Amen. Yeah, rest and rest. Yeah, I like that. That's great. That's great. I love that idea of um, you know, you're 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 either doing things leading to more energy or less energy. It's so simple. Yeah. But that's true. I can reflect on myself and go, oh, when when have I been making that choice that's gonna pull me down? You know? Yeah. And right. focusing on your output versus uh, valuing your input, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Right. There's always gonna be more things to do in 2023, man. If you tripled your productivity, all all that would mean is you triple your to-do list. Yeah, you're uh, just expected to work harder after that. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the most productive person on the team gets the most work. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so it's not that's not our competitive advantage anymore. It's not really it doesn't really make sense. It's not uh, loving it makes sense now. Yeah. It's not loving kindness to yourself. It's yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. And we have real human physical limits. Um, but we're smart creatures. We're smart and lazy. That's really our evolutionary advantage. We're like, if if there's work to be done, can I use a lever and do it by just moving my pinky finger instead of using my whole body here? That would be great. Uh, yeah, so we figure out easier ways to do things, but unless we value rest, we're never going to get it because there's always more, you know, always more to do's. Uh, so that's the, that's the first shift we need to make there. Mm, yeah. I like now, that. Flowing from that, um, how close are you to finishing your book, The Joy of Doing? Well, just started, so quite close. <laughs> no, but I am in a, I am in a book class, book writing class with uh, Richard Nongard, another hypnotist. Nice. He calls it the twelve week book. I don't think I'm going to complete my book in twelve weeks, but uh, you know, maybe maybe twenty four weeks. That just seems more reasonable. Um, it is my first book I've ever. Uh, well, 
Uh, I would be the first book I've completed. I've started several other books, so I'm getting better at the process of failing to write books, which is great. Uh, and eventually I'll succeed at actually completing a book. And this one I think is likely because I'm going to keep it short and I'm going to, I already have most of the ideas worked out in my head. So um, I think, uh, I think it could actually get done in, you know, by mid 2023 here. Plus you have some, uh, some social accountability because of the, of what you've written. On now, people who are trying to told the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah. You could just, you could just replay this podcast and then just start working on your, you know, and then there's there your you proximity, go. you know, that's that proximity. I'll just have you yeah. guys with me. That'd yeah. be great. So <laughs> hey, hey, Duff, um, uh, how maybe you could talk just a little bit about how people can find you and, and sure. let people know what, what, what's available in terms of the work that you do. Yeah. Yeah. So my website, boulderhypnosisworks.com, boulder, B-O-U-L-D-E-R, as in Boulder, Colorado, boulderhypnosisworks.com. You can find out all about my one-on-one coaching there. Uh, I also have group coaching. We meet every Sunday. We just started last, uh, on January 8th of 2023. So you can jump in anytime, but uh, we've got a great group forming and we're practicing having a safe space to try new things and fail and and learn from that. So uh, people are excited about that. Uh, and I've got some uh, some videos on TikTok, on YouTube, on on Instagram, and so on. It's the same same content mostly on each one of those things. But you can find that all on BoulderHypnosisWorks.com. Got links to all my socials and stuff there. So check it okay. out. Okay, beautiful, beautiful, perfect. Gosh, yeah. Um, and and this whole time the Tao has been flowing in the sky behind Carlos's head. <laughs> You know, that, for those of you who don't know what the Dow is, that's it. It's that that green stuff up in the Ethereal. sky. Well, you, you can't. The, the Dow that can be named is not the true Dow. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, then it's the reflections <laughs> off the water and your background off and you know, all that stuff. So, well, and I, I, want, I want to acknowledge again that uh, once once again we we have. Um, uh, I, I didn't realize this when I invited Duff to to the podcast, but mm-hmm. um, I, I knew it somewhere in the back of my mind, but I didn't. It wasn't conscious uh, that we have uh, the Vipassinate, a meeting of Vipassinators. <laughs> yes, Vipassinators. We're, yes. we're all Vipassinators. <laughs> we yeah. always feel excited about that. Like it makes us smile when we mm-hmm. when we realize, oh shoot, you've done Vipassana too. It's kind of like yeah. a, I don't know, uh-huh. it's like a brotherly or sisterly. Yeah. It's yeah. a it's an intense experience. So uh, you know anyone else who's who's gone through that trial, very worth uh, has my respect too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, as soon, as soon as you meet somebody who's done it, you, there, there's this instant knowing and an understanding of like, <laughs> oh, we're yeah. cut from the same leather. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, um, this has been lovely and uh, very. Mm-hmm just a wonderful dive into these ideas. I really am grateful that we could work out a time where we could connect online like this and, and have this interview. It's been really fun talking with you, Duff. Great fun. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah. I feel feel like I know you a little bit now. So yeah. yeah, Now we're friends. It's too late. Too late. Now we're friends. My brain always goes back and forth between Andrew and Duff and Duffy. Facebook required me to use my uh, birth name, Andrew, for a long time. And I finally got him to to change it back to Duff, which is Mm. what I prefer. But yeah, Andrew's okay, but I I much prefer Duff. So yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, all right. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. All right. So until next time, stay authentic. Oh, yeah. been listening to the authenticity show 
with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Duff McDuffie. If you want to get in touch with Duff, you can find his website at boulderhypnosisworks.com. My name is Oliver Altine. I produce the show. I also wrote our theme song, which you're listening to right now. Please remember to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on social media, and you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thanks, and have an authentic day.